The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. Welcome to Park Church. Uh, glad you all are here. Thanks for coming to worship together with us. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to thank you for being here with us. Um, I have a few announcements, and then I'm excited to introduce you all to Brandon Washington, who's here. I'm going to be opening God's Word together um, with us. And so um, before we do, um, first of all, if you're new to Park Church, welcome. Uh, We'd love to get to know you. After every service, we take about 10 minutes in a room right down this hallway in a room marked introductions. Take about 10 minutes. We can share a little bit of our story as a church, our mission that God's called us to in this city and give you some more steps. If you want to get more plugged into Park Church, we'd love to get to know you. So we'd invite you to that right after the service, right down this hallway in the room marked introductions. If you are um, a part of Park Church, if you call Park Church your home, uh, thanks for being here with us. We want to continue to remind ourselves week after week after week that it's not just kind of a room full of people that are coming together to learn something, that we're actually a family that God's called together um, as a family. Uh, He's our father and he's given us a mission in this city. And as a member of this family on mission, we want to continue to encourage you to invest in that mission in a few different ways. Um, One would be by serving this church family in some capacity. There are structured capacities where you can do that. You can help with making disciples of children downstairs right now. Kids are being discipled. They're learning about Jesus and the gospel. We need more people to be investing in our children, both to invest in them, but also to free up parents to be able to grow as disciples um, upstairs. And so our hope is that we'd have more people volunteering for that. You can be a part of our welcome team or helping lead a gospel community or um, helping host a gospel community. Um, but also just to serve the body relationally. You just had a bunch of conversations, getting to know people. What does it look like to actually invest in the people that you're getting to know, take them out for lunch or coffee, or take somebody in your gospel community out for lunch and get to know them more, find out how you can serve them and care for them. So commit to the body, um, but also want to encourage you to be giving financially to the mission that God's called us to. Um, Part of what he's called us to as a church family is to steward the resources that he's entrusted to us sacrificially and generously to further the mission that he's called this church on. So encourage you to continue to give um, sacrificially and generously to the mission of God through the church. And then last, I want to encourage you to be serving the city. Uh, we're not just kind of a group of Christians that want to huddle together and kind of stay away from the city. We actually believe that Jesus has called us to be a light in the city, um, that we'd be scattering throughout the city in our various neighborhoods and workplaces, doing the different hobbies that we do, participating in different activities as a light in the city. And so I want to encourage you to find ways to serve the city, to love your neighbors, to get to know your neighbors, to get to know your coworkers, to invest in the city through the work that you're doing with your hands. And through all of these things that we're bearing the image of God in the city, that's part of what he's called us to as his people. Um, And if you're looking for kind of more structured ways to do that, we also partner with a number of different institutions. We've been sharing uh, a little bit about a number of those institutions for the past several months. If you want more information about how to connect to different institutions that we partner with, different nonprofits doing good work in the city, you can find out more at the Love 5280 table in the back kind of corner of the gallery. And then also, um, we have a team that leads our Love 5280 efforts. They're trying to structure opportunities for us to um, pursue the good of the city. That team of people is actually starting a cohort, like a book study, through Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. Um, Generous Justice is an excellent book where Tim Keller's unpacking for us the nature of God's character as one who does mercy, who's generous in who he is, and, and how should that shape us as a people. And so if you're interested in walking through that book with a group of people, um, we'd invite you um, starting next Sunday. It'll be during the 9 o'clock service. So you come to the 9, do the book study, and you can come and worship with the body at the 11. It'll be in the room right upstairs, right above the gallery. Um, they're going to be walking through that book in an eight-week So we'd invite you to come to that um, if you're available for or interested. Um, As we uh, move on, I'm excited this morning. We have um, a great friend um, in ministry here, Brandon Washington, who's going to be opening up God's word for us. We've been excited to have Brandon for a number of different reasons. One, uh, we just love him, love you as a man, as a brother. Thankful for what God's done in your life. Thankful for the things we get to learn from him, things that I've been learning from him over the past couple years. I'm so excited for you to get to know Brandon I'm thankful for him investing some time in us. Also, he's a pastor preaching and vision at the Embassy Church, which is another Acts 29 church that meets downtown in kind of the Cole um, Five Points neighborhood. And they're doing amazing gospel work in a very diverse and divided neighborhood of our city. One of their passions, you'll hear more about this, is to bring the gospel to bear in all of life. That the gospel isn't just about reconciling us to God. It's about restoring all things. That Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, is restoring everything that's broken. 
As we think about Genesis 3, one of the things that happens when humanity turns from God is brokenness infests everything. Not just our relationship with God bringing division there, but actually brings division between people. It brings division in structures, brokenness in a number of different areas in our lives, in our institutions, and in our city and our neighborhoods. And one of the passions of the embassy church is to bring the gospel to bear into all of that brokenness. And it's one of our passions, but we really see what the embassy is doing as uh, they're really leading the way in a lot of these conversations. And we've looked to them as learners, trying to learn from them, grow from their example in the city. Just thankful for you to get to know um, Brandon. The other elders of the embassy are wonderful men that God is calling to do beautiful work in the city. So we're thankful for that whole church and their willingness to invest in Park by sending Brandon to be with us, kind of away from his church family this morning to be with us. So we're excited for that. And also, um, like I just mentioned, this is an area where we've been talking about for the past couple years. We feel like the Holy Spirit has been convicting us corporately and as leaders and as individuals and some of our apathy and indifference towards some of the issues of division that we see kind of permeating our culture, our, our cities, and our society at, at large. Um, the gospel addresses these things in very powerful, powerful ways. And Brandon has a growing voice um, as a leader in this conversation. And so um, we're excited to have him with us tonight, today and then also tomorrow evening. We'll talk more about that later uh, as we learn what does it mean? What's the gospel calling us to as a people as the gospel through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is reconciling us to God, but also to pursue reconciliation in the city where he's called us to live. And so thankful for, again, his leadership in this issue. And I'm excited for you guys to be learning from him. He's going to be preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you will, open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we'll read from there, and then I'll, I'll welcome him up. Good morning. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one in the um, pew back or somewhere close by. And if you don't have one at home, please feel free to take that as a gift. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there should be no dissensions among you, divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Will you guys join me in welcoming up Brandon Washington? Thanks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, um, that you are a father. Um, you, there's one father, your father of all, and we thank you for being a gracious father. Um, thank you for your love for your people, that right now, um, all around this city, there are people gathered together to worship you, to sing praises to you, to glorify you because of what you've done for us in Christ. Um, I, I'm praying, Father, that by your spirit you would empower Brandon uh, in, in really significant ways this morning and that you would open up our hearts to be learning from you, um, from your word and from him uh, as we learn about how the gospel is reconciling people to yourself but also restoring everything that's broken. Um, so we pray that you would bring conviction to our hearts, encouragement, that you lift our eyes to Jesus, the reconciler, and that you would glorify yourself in this time. Thank you for uh, the Embassy Church and their willingness to invest energy, um, to care for and, and to help um, provide leadership for us as a church. Thank you for their care for us. Pray you pour out grace on them as they worship you this morning as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Can you hear me? Am I on? Good morning. Good morning. All right, there we go. There we go. Okay couple things. I forgot to do this in the first service, and this is kind of my policy, okay? So I practice the sermon on the first service, and then you guys get the real thing, all right? Um, uh, I want to, I'll just, let's for just a moment uh, celebrate the worship team that, that ushered us into the presence of God before we heard the word of God this morning. Let's, let's, let's celebrate them for just a moment. Right. Yeah. 
my wife is unable to be here this morning because, uh, and I'm, and I'm quoting her, um, my inability to communicate my schedule to her has struck again. <laughs> Close quote. And, uh, so she's leading worship at embassy this morning. That's why she's not able to be here. Uh, but she did want to extend her greeting to you. I also want to take the time to, to thank you for allowing your leadership here to be so available to us. I find it odd uh, that Pastor Gary can come and stand in front of you and talk about all that we are uh, for, for you, but, but Park Church is a blessing for us. Even between the gatherings this morning, just sitting and talking with him was a pastoral blessing for me. I'm always convicted when I sit uh, with him because I hear the testimony of what God is doing in and through him. So I want to publicly affirm you um, in that regard. And then, um, and then I'm also friends with many of your other elders. Uh, Tony is Tony is my Tony is my sibling. I think we are. I think we may have the same father, like biological father, because um, we're so much we're so much alike. He's 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 my guy, and they have been a consistent blessing and their and their gracious outpouring to us has been has not been overlooked by us. Uh I, I want you to know that my hair is not normally this long. Uh I am working you're like, what was that? Okay, okay. I'm working on my I'm working on my master's thesis. And it's the last semester in which my wife will ever allow me to be in school. So so I'm making the best of it and I have a witness to this. Where's Matt? Come. Okay, so 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 everyone look at Matt. Okay, Matt works in the library at Denver Seminary. So as I say this, you simply nod and say, that is true, okay? So on a daily basis for the past six weeks, I have walked into the library in clothing that is falling apart and tattered to write, a dis- to write my thesis. Is that true? And I have behind me... <laughs> That was not convincing at all. The, and I have behind me crates and crates of books on a dolly that I bring into the library with me so I can write this thesis. Is that true? And every two hours, because my room expires after two hours, every two hours I come to him so I can extend the time on my, in my room so I can continue to write this thesis. Is that true? Every, okay. <laughs> By that he means I break the rules, Okay. Now, now here's this, this is the key. Now, everyone look at him. And because of this, he knows that I am going to have, I will have written the best thesis in the history of Denver Seminary. Go. Oh. <laughs> I don't believe you. Okay. My thesis is on doctor, the doctrine of justification as expressed by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'm particularly, yes. Yes. Someone's read the Metaxas book. Okay. Okay. Now listen, listen. The, the reason it's key to me is his doctrine of justification gave rise to his theological ethics, which gave rise to his social justice, which resulted in his death on behalf of other people. He died for someone other than himself, and it all came out of his doctrine of sanctification and the corresponding ethics and social justice that came out of that. And that's going to be relevant to us in a moment, but the thing I want for you to hear me say first is, he is not the author, he is not the originator of that, it is a biblical imperative. Is a biblical idea, and we want to address what that means from the Bible and, and give you an idea of how God is compelling all of us to live our lives. But before we do that, I want to say this as a preface, okay? Now, I know I'm at Park, and you guys are a Presbyterian or whatever, okay? And so you're all, you're all down with the liturgy and everything like that. Okay, that clock says 32 minutes and 20 seconds. Okay, for the next 32 minutes, you are National Baptist... <laughs> Which means we all preach this sermon. Yeah, I'm not convinced. All right, so let, all right. So here's how this works. All right, I'm going to give you a black church primer, okay? All right, because we're doing this together, okay? If you agree with what I'm saying, if you affirm what I'm saying, you've already, you've always believed it. It's not new to you. You affirm what I'm saying, then out loud, not in your head... You don't write it down in your notes. Out loud, you say amen. Amen. All right, very very good, very good, very good. Now, that one, we're stretching now. Now it's time for us to get on the field. Okay, so 
if it's convicting for you. And it, it may hit like a spiritual wound. Like it, may, it may hit you in a spot where you're like, I never thought about that. I'm guilty of that. Then you do what we call the deacon hum. You say, mm. <laughs> mm. And, and if you get advanced, if you're advanced, if you're, <laughs> if you're advanced, you, you, you kind of shake your head like, mm. Yeah. Now don't do that until you're ready. Don't do that. Just say, mm. If you're not ready, just leave your head alone, okay? Then the third thing is, if, and this is the reason we're here, if God is made famous, if a truth of God is published and it brings renown to his name, then appropriately you say, hallelujah. Now listen to me. Listen. Listen. We do that during the sermon. I know that some of your prayer, I like some of your, your, your vocal, some of your expressive emotion is in your notes. And if I were to read your sermon notes later today, you're like, oh, this really did make an impact on them because they wrote indeed right here in the notes. No, no, no. You say indeed to me because we're preaching this sermon together. Amen? Amen? All right, because God will be glorified. Hallelujah. All right? All right, now listen to me. Listen, uh, my name is Brandon Washington. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Born and raised in Dallas. Yes, I am the Cowboy fan in Denver. And uh, one of the things that happens when you're raised in that part of the world is you experience what it is to be Christianized, even if you're not Christian. So we did not regularly attend church, but we were there enough to learn the language. We learned the, the way you talk about God, independent of an intimate relationship with God. And that lack of intimate relationship resulted in a series of observations on my part as a child that, that allowed me to disassociate myself, take issue with the church. And when I was about 12 years old, I read a biography of a man named Malcolm X and became, uh, I fell in love with an organization called the Nation of Islam. This is what the Nation of Islam taught me about white people. You are the result of, 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 a, of a rebellious scientist rebelling against God and therefore gradually breeding the black germ, to use the word that they would use, out of a people and you gradually were walked from being people of color to being blonde haired and blue eyed. In fact, Elijah Muhammad says that blonde hair and blue eyes is the ugliest combination on the planet because of the thing from which it derives. When I sat down in the mosque for the first time and heard a lecture, I heard someone with a straight face refer to white people as blonde-haired, blue-eyed devils. That was what I experienced as a 12-year-old. And by a series of events that we don't have time to unpack today, we'll cover it in more detail tomorrow evening, God delivered me from that and I end up being a part of a church where I was baptized and it was a place where I ever heard, the first, the first place I ever heard the gospel, but I couldn't help but notice that the church where I landed, where I was baptized and heard the gospel, it looked exactly like the segregationist, racist cult out of which God had delivered me. And it was a church. And my question for the pastor was, how was it that we can claim that there's one God and it is worshipped by these people who love him, but when it is time for us to gather and worship him, we decide to go to different places and do it in these isolated cylinders that have nothing to do with one another. If we say we have this God in common, then why is it that we do not look like people who have him in common? That was my question for him. His answer was, people are inclined to be drawn toward others who are like them or are familiar to them. They're either like you or familiar to you. And that has resulted in the xenophobic behavior of worshiping God only in the presence of people who are like us or are familiar to us. And by the way, that is not a white thing. That is not a black thing. That is not a brown thing. It is a depraved, fallen human thing. We are inclined to seek out people who look, think, sound, 
vote like us. And we'll make sure we're all in the same room so that when we discuss those things, there's no funny moment. There's no complication. There's no need for us to figure out how do you integrate this diversity. You don't have to integrate diversity where there is none. So we intentionally set up our structures where diversity is absent so that we can avoid the complications of bringing people into our lives and living in fellowship with them in spite of distinctions. In fact, I would contend that the New Testament does not compel us to live with people in spite of our distinctions. It's compelling us to live with them because of our distinctions. Because it's God's desire to have a diverse choir of people who sing his praises back to him. And if everyone's the same, that's a very boring song. (laughs) It is. It's a very, very boring song. God knew what he was doing. He says, I want this thing to be an eclectic display of my brilliance and my supremacy. I want all of these people who are nothing alike to come come together because they have me in common. And I want for them to sing my praises according to who I am. But instead of doing that, we divided. Now you have a text in front of you that addresses that. Because we're not new. He says... In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Verse 10 is what you would call the programmatic verse of the book. The entire letter of of 1 Corinthians is intended to address the manner in which a gathering of people was living in, in proximity to one another, but they were not united among themselves. He then goes, gives you the details. He says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, either a member of her family or one of her servants, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you, here we go, says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he asked them a key question. Is Christ divided? Now let's unpack this for a moment. He gives you four personalities, and I'm telling you that the people there in the church decided that they were going to divide among themselves, not according to an ideology, but according to personalities. It wasn't because of the message being conveyed, it was because of the messenger conveying it. How do we know that? Because Paul, Cephas, Apollos, and Christ, they all had the same message. And that is that Christ is king. For for the record, when Jesus showed up, Jesus talked about Jesus. (laughs) They all had the same message. And in spite of the fact that their message was the same, the people there in this local body decided to divide along the lines of the personalities who were communicating the message instead of being united around the message itself. Are you tracking with that? They divided according to personalities. Now, now, how do I need, how is this relevant to the discussion we had regarding preferences or, or things that are familiar? Well, I would contend that it's not an accident that, that Paul uses the name Cephas when he's talking about Peter. Some of you should have taken note of the fact that he says Cephas because he's using his Jewish name. And I believe that's because the people there in Corinth who were Gentile, but they identified Christianity as a byproduct, a sect, an off-breaking of Judaism. They thought that the most appropriate, the most accurate thing to do is learn about this Jewish sect of Christianity by listening to the Jewish man. Peter is known for being the voice of consistent Judaism. He's known for being a devout Jewish actor. If you, if you read his behavior in Galatians chapter 2, you see how devoted, even when inappropriate, how devoted he was to the Jewish customs. And they're thinking, he really loves this thing. Or as, as Derek Kelsey, one of, my, one of my teammates at Embassy, as he would say, uh, uh, Cephas was about that life. <laughs> he was about that Jewish life. And when they hear him talk about this Christianity and its outworking from from Judaism, they say, he's the guy we will identify with. In other words, they chose him according to his cultural distinction. They did the same thing with Paul. 
Now, Paul's Jewish. You're thinking, how in the world are they choosing him according to a cultural distinction? Well, because Paul is a multicultural personality. He's a Roman citizen who was a Jewish Pharisee and was educated in Greek cultural philosophy. You have all of that in one person. And that's why it's not an accident that he was the one chosen to be the, the prominent missionary in Asia Minor and non-Jewish cultural backgrounds. He spoke the language and cultural norms and philosophy of the Gentiles who were there. So they looked at him and said, yeah, he's Jewish, but he speaks our language. He speaks our cultural norm. We're going to identify with him. So there was a sect there that said, Paul is our guy. And then you have people who did not do it necessarily according to cultural norms, but societal norms. Because society prefers education. And they look at Apollos and say, he's from Alexandria. He has letters behind his name. He's educated. He's read a book. He's smart. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that he was an eloquent, a competent, a, a brilliant communicator. So he was informed and could communicate especially well. And people were drawn to the higher office, to the, to the prestige of being identified with Apollos. They would look at him and say, he is clearly brilliant. So much so that half the time, I don't even know what he's saying. <laughs> but whatever he's saying, he is saying it. <laughs> That's my God. So they chose according to cultural and societal preferences. They chose according to the individual and not the message. In fact, Paul directly addresses that in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, Christ did not come, send me here to impress you with my delivery. The thing you should be fixated on is the comprehensive gospel message that I am bringing in the Paul package. Now, here's why that's relevant to you. They got so distracted by the package that they missed how comprehensive the gospel message is. Let me give you guys a moment, a growth moment. This, I remember the moment this dawned on me, and I want for everyone to have that same light bulb moment. Jesus did not die so that you could go to heaven. He did not merely die so that you could experience redemption. Parenthetically, just from a moment of eschatology, uh, he didn't die so that heaven will be the ultimate destination for anyone because we're going to be living on a glorified earth, but I digress. <laughs> he did not die so that you could go to heaven. And that's the consistent message. When we give someone the Romans road or we give someone spiritual laws, we always talk about how Jesus' death delivers them from sin and they'll get to enjoy the eternal bliss of that in his presence forever. And I'm saying to you that that's not the point of his death. If you're fixated on gold streets and pearly gates, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. First of all, the thing that makes heavenly experience heaven is the fact that God is there. You're not going to be focused on streets, people. Who cares that it's gold? It's pavement. Who cares? You're going to be in the presence of God. If God set up camp in a junkyard, that is the heavenly experience. He's not trying to deliver you from the present world so you can go to heaven. He dies so that everything that is broken can be made whole. But the relationship between God and humanity is not the only thing that was broken. When people come to me and ask me about the schools and the businesses and the households in my neighborhood, my response to them is, we are here so that the gospel can come to bear on the schools and the homes and the, and the businesses in our neighborhood so that wholeness can be brought to these institutions in our neighborhood. Jesus died so that that brokenness can be made whole. Ephesians chapter 2 says that his death does not merely reconcile you to him. It also reconciles us to one another. Jesus died so that the rift in relationship within humanity can be made whole. 
That is an essential part of the gospel. Now, that's why verse 17 becomes relevant because he says, you got so fixated on the manner in which I gave you the gospel that you divided among yourselves and chose people who was going to be your communicators of the gospel. And in doing that, you were violating the gospel that we were all communicating. When you divided along the lines of gospel delivery, you were violating the gospel that we were delivering. You missed the point. That's his agenda here. And the world is looking at you and saying they seem to have missed the point of their own message. Who cares what we say about unity? The world's looking at what we do regarding unity. Now, why is that relevant to us now? If you read Divided by Faith, you will notice that they define a diverse church as such. This is fascinating to me. A church is diverse if there's no cultural people group in the church who comprises 80% or more of that church. In other words, if I go into a church and there's a predominant people group there, but they are only 79% of the church or less, then the church qualifies as diverse. If there are 21% in the church who are outside of the predominant people group, according to this book, then the church is diverse. Now, let me say this parenthetically. That is an extremely gracious definition for diversity. (laughs) Just for the record. I have never walked into a room of 100 people and said, good, there's 19 other people here who look like me. (laughs) This is the display of the kingdom, people. No, that's never happened. That does not happen. That's a very generous definition. Very, very generous definition, okay? In spite of the generosity of that definition, only 20% of the churches in America would qualify. In spite of the generosity of the definition, only 20% of the churches in America would qualify as diverse. Why? Because we tend to be drawn to people who look like us or people whom we prefer. And I'm saying to you that that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. That is out of step with the truth of the gospel. That is out of step with the truth of the gospel. It is also a violation of the office to which God has called us. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, Paul speaking, he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says to you in verse 2 that you have experienced, if you are a believer, you have experienced a sanctification in the past, which then gives you the office of saints in the present. In other words, something happened in your past that defines the manner in which you are supposed to live going forward. He does that intentionally in verse 2 because he's about to chastise them according to their behavior. He's basically saying to them that the manner in which you are living is inconsistent with what your father has said about you. Your father has said you experience sanctification via the cross and therefore you are saints. The manner in which you are living and your division is inconsistent with the office of saint to which God has called you. You are not living according to who your father says you are. That's what he says to them. I have, uh, I have two children. I have a daughter named Reese. And she is seven. And I have a son named Ellis. And he is five. And I adore them. I adore them. And they're nothing alike. Nothing like. My daughter is an extreme introvert. So it's possible for her to walk into a room filled with people and disappear in the crowd. So my consistent message to her is you are worthy of being heard. My, my, I, I take them to school on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. My wife takes them to school on Monday and Tuesday. 
When my wife wakes them up on Monday and Tuesday, she goes into their room and she opens up the curtains and she lets one ray, one single ray of light, a single ray of light come into the room and she lets it break just across their face, just across their face, just enough to, to, to bring them out of their sleep, just enough, just, just right here, just right here. <laughs> And she's singing, and she's, she's kissing them on their forehead, and she's saying, you are my favorite children. <laughs> and she makes this distinction between, between waking up and getting up. So she goes in to wake them, but she doesn't make them get out of bed. She wakes them, and then she kisses them, and she sings to them, and then she goes into the kitchen, and she starts cooking something nutritious. And the smell of it wafts into their bedroom, and they're drawn out of their bed by the meal that their mother, their loving, loving, loving mother cooks for them. And when they all get together, they like sing Ring Around the Rosie, and there's this whole moment every single time she wakes them up. Drives me crazy. That's on Monday and Tuesday. <laughs> Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I come in. I turn on all the lights. I have a flashlight in their face. Get up. I got to go. <laughs> I got stuff to do. I have a meeting at 9. Get up. It's time to go. <laughs> Mommy's people-oriented. I'm task-oriented. Let's go. Okay? And my daughter says, this is not how Mommy does it. Her mother has to be at work at 445. That's why I'm responsible for them on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And I say to my daughter, your mother's not here. Get up. <laughs> and they are upset with me. So we're in the car, and I'm driving them to school. They go to two separate schools, and I give each of them a speech according to who they are. That's my way of making up for the manner in which I woke them up. Because I want them to know that in spite of the flashlight, daddy loves you. And I give each of them a speech. And I do it according to their personality. My daughter, introvert. And I have to repeatedly say to her, baby girl, your voice is worthy of being heard. Your voice is worthy of being heard. When it is time for you to speak up, speak up. Because your voice is worthy of being heard. That's the consistent message she gets on the way to school. And I walk her into her school, and I stop at the door, and I have four questions for her. I say, who are you? And she says, I'm your daughter. I said, what is my daughter? And she says, your daughter is valuable. I said, how are you going to live today? And she says, I'm going to live as though I have value. And I said, how is everyone in this school obligated to treat you today? I don't care who it is, parent, teacher, classmate, custodian, cafeteria worker. How are they obligated to treat you today? She says, Daddy, everyone here is obligated to treat me as though I have value. I said, that's right, little girl. And if they don't, you tell your daddy. <laughs> and I will be up here. And heads will roll. Do you hear me? And she says, I know, Daddy. Mwah. And then she skips off the school. Because I want her to know her voice is worthy of being heard. Her brother... Give me a minute. This boy. Okay, so, so he doesn't have that problem. My, my brother, my, my, my son does not walk into a school and disappear. He walks into a room and he takes over. My son believes that you are worthy of hearing his voice. <laughs> so it's a whole different speech. Son, listen to me. Leaders submit to leadership. Leaders submit to leadership. I get it, daddy. No, you're not listening. <laughs> Leaders submit to leadership. That's his speech all the way to school. And I get to the classroom and I say, son, I got four questions for you. Who are you? He says, I'm your son. I said, what is my son? He says, your son is a leader. I said, what do leaders do? He says, leaders show everyone else what is right. I said, how do they do it? He says, they show everyone else what's right by doing what's right. I said, that's right, boy. And when I come back up here, if Miss Ginger says you were not a leader, your head will roll. 
I know, Daddy. And he just skip off. <laughs> Two weeks ago, he came home. He says, Daddy, I have decided that you are wrong. This actually happened. And I said, all right, boy, I'm going to hear you out. But I'm going to take my belt off now. Because I can tell by how this started, it's not going to end well, okay? He says, listen, listen, hear me out, Daddy. He said, today, I did not do what was right. And because I did not do what was right, I was unable to show everyone in my class what is right. And because I was unable to show them that, that means I am not a leader. And my wife, he's five. And my wife says, that is your son. <laughs> he, he, he basically took your words, turned them into a syllogism, and then threw them back at you. I said, he did that. I don't know if I should be proud or if I should put my hands on him. I don't know. <laughs> Having said that, here's the flaw in your system. Today, you did not discover you're not a leader. Today, you discovered your willingness to live a life that is not consistent with who your father said you are. That's what happened. I know you better than you will ever know yourself. When I say something about you, that's what you take to the bank. I have observed you, boy, since before you were born. I see leadership potential in you. But today, because it was complicated, you violated what your father said about you. When Paul addressed his letter to the church at Corinth, he says to them, you have, as believers, experienced past tense sanctification, and therefore you are to live as present saints. And your division is behavior that shows your willingness to choose your preferences over what your father has said you are. When we choose division, when we choose a gathering because it looks like us, when we value segregation instead of integration, we are behaving out of step with who our Father has told us we are. As saints, that is unsaintly behavior. Embassy will be five years old two weeks from today. And when we planted the church, we wrote a proposal for fundraising purposes, and that, fun that proposal became public. And a professor from a seminary in the southeast part of the country, a professor of missiology, came to us and told us the flaw in our proposal. He says, you desire a church that is diverse and integrated. That's a, that's a problem. I said, go. Like, explain that to me. He said, I'm not making this up. Couldn't if I wanted to. He said, you're black. He has a PhD. <laughs> so I believe him. <laughs> he said, because you are black, you probably preach the way black preachers preach. So you should target the black people in the neighborhood because, and here's his logic, if you target everyone, then you will be targeting no one. That's his logic. I said, so here's what you're telling me to do. You want me to walk up and down the streets in my community and point to the houses saying, yes, yes, no, 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 maybe. <laughs> yes, no, yes, yes, no. That's what you want me to do. Because I'm talking about a comprehensive gospel that does not discriminate in that manner. There are people in my neighborhood who live on the same street and do not speak to one another. If I say to some of them, you are welcome here, and say, to, say nothing to the rest of them, then as the church of God, I am condoning their decision to not live in community with one another. And I'm not willing to compromise so great a salvation in that manner. He said, you should just get people saved. And God will integrate the church in eternity. And I said to him, 
There's this passage in the book of Revelation where we get a glimpse into how worship looks before the throne of God. And John says, I saw every nation, every tribe, and every tongue there worshiping the God whom they all had in common. And he says, yes, but that's an eternity. And my response to that was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, this is not the dressed rehearsal. This is the real thing. This is not the dressed rehearsal. This is the real thing. If that's how worship occurs there, then that's how worship should occur here. When we gathered in this room today, we joined every single church on the planet in corporate worship of our God. And we also join every single believer in all of history in the corporate worship of our God. If the historic saints revealed to John a gathering in which every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every socioeconomic status present then we should value that as a body of believers. It is sin to do otherwise. It is not naughtiness. It is not preference. It is not our uncontrollable circumstances. In a metropolitan city, it is sin. And it is the responsibility of the church to go to the God of everyone and repent of our sin. It is the responsibility of the church to go to God and repent of our sin. I cannot tell you how many people in our church because we did not compromise on this, left the church. I cannot tell you how many people of color said, I do not want to worship in a church where there are white people because they will take over. I cannot tell you how many white people said, how many of those black songs are y'all going to sing on Sunday? I was like, until y'all get the rhythm right. We all can clap on two and four. We'll stop. (laughs) So we're going to be doing it for life, okay? (laughs) I cannot tell you how many people have said that to us. And because we refused to compromise on it, they left. My joy is in the fact that one day I will see my king and he's going to have a whole list of stuff I did wrong. But I, will look, I look forward to the day he smiles upon me and says, on this one, you got it right. You chose me and my kingdom over preferences and similarities. It's sin. Let us bring our sin to God so that it can be slayed. I'll, I'll, I'll sit down. But, the, but this, is why, this is why I want to say to you before we go, okay? The problem with this particular sin is we think that we can control it. And it can be, it can be expressed according to our preferences instead of us selflessly, sacrificially allowing it to die. Allowing it to die. And I'm saying to you that that's an area where we need to repent as well. So here's, here's where we're going with this, and then I'll stop, okay? This is a sin that does not need to be controlled. It needs to be killed. It needs to be killed. And human beings have a tendency to want to put things that are uncontrollable on leashes. That's our tendency. We want to put the uncontrollable on a leash, okay? So, so some of you may know about this. A few years ago, there was a, I'm not going to mention any names. You'll figure it out, okay? There's a magic troop, a crew, a duo in Vegas that work with tigers. And one of them got attacked by one of the tigers. 
I'm not going to go into any details about that. Listen to me because you might laugh when, when I go forward. That was tragic. That was tragic. Tragic, tragic moment. It was a very bad moment. He was attacked by a tiger. That was horrible. However, <laughs> when they interviewed people who were present, they had the most fascinating evaluations of what happened. They interviewed one woman and she says, we thought this was a part of the show. You thought that a man being grabbed by his head and drug off by a 700-pound tiger was a part of the plan. <laughs> That's what you thought. Then they introduced someone else and we said, we didn't think it was going to last very long because clearly the, the tiger was just trying to protect him from the other tigers. Yes, by ripping his scalp off of his head, you thought he was protecting him from the other tigers. That may be true, but someone do something. Listen, if, ever, if I'm ever being protected by a tiger, save me. <laughs> Third person, I loved her most. She said, we were watching the show. And the tiger just went crazy. No, he didn't. Listen to me. The tiger didn't go crazy. The tiger went tiger. <laughs> this is what tigers do. They are apex predators. When tigers walk through the jungles of India, Elephants do not say, I wonder if we can tame him. They say, a tiger is coming. It is time for us to go. <laughs> the only threat to tigers, are you ready for this? The only threat to tigers are other tigers and men with guns. Everybody else gives them a wide berth. You know why? Because animals know. You can't tame a tiger, but a human being, let's put him on a leash and see what goes, comes of this. <laughs> yes, and let's make a magazine show. Let's put them in a casino and make them jump through hoops of fire, and maybe they can disappear, and everyone will be entertained. I'm saying, no, that's not how this works. They're tigers. Leave them alone. And when they're in close proximity to you, and don't, don't send me an email on this, but if a tiger walks into my living room, I'm not going to tame it. I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> because that's what you do with tigers. <laughs> you, you don't tame it. If it's a threat, which it always is, you kill it. By the way, in the defense of the tiger, I'm not gonna come to his crib either. <laughs> when he walks in here, you shoot him. That's what you do. Instead of putting the tiger on a leash, you kill it. Instead of putting sin on a leash and saying, let's see how much we can control this thing, you kill it. And you, you bring it to the feet of the sin slayer and say, God, this is my repentance before you. And you ask him to be the executor of your sin instead of trying to be the controller of it yourself. Our decision to prefer ourselves over others is sin. I'm not telling you to tame it. I'm saying that as a body of believers before the world, it behooves us to kill it. And that is in step with the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. God, let us not take for granted your willingness to intervene on our behalf so that we could be in close proximity to you and in close proximity to one another. Give us hearts that worship you sacrificially so that others can be served sacrificially so that people who are not like us can be understood and enjoyed and we can empathize with them because we are in close proximity to them. That close proximity was purchased by you on the cross. Let us not receive that grand payment and live as though it never happened. So let us bring our, our racism, our sexism, our, our socioeconomic views to the feet of the sin slayer so that you may kill it according to your holiness. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said.